Good morning. It's Monday, March 19th. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. I'm Anastasia Uglova. Over a year ago at a Cato City seminar in New York, MSNBC's Tucker Carlson gave a speech sketching the decline and fall of the Republican Party. At the time, Tucker correctly predicted the dissolution of the contract with America in the November elections. Now that the 110th Congress has convened, I wanted to follow up on his thoughts on another election, the one that awaits us in 2008. Everyone is prepared to offer up a theory as to how the right went wrong, and the latest iteration of that is Karen Tumulty in the recent issue of Time magazine in an article titled, How the Right Went Wrong. Would you care to put in your two cents? The right got power. That's the larger problem. Specifically, Bush is not an ideologue, was never a committed conservative on any deep level. I think some of his instincts are conservative, maybe even libertarian. Some aren't. Karl Rove and some of the people around him decided early and I mean 1998 when he was still governor, that co-opting conservative organizations, professional conservatives in Washington and in the states was key to his victory. And they did, and they succeeded in doing it. A lot of conservatives, after spending low these many years out of power, watching Clinton from the sidelines, hating him, were desperate to be in the orbit of a president. And they, I think, sort of tossed aside their principles in return for the perception that they had access to Bush. So the whole conservative movement, such as it was, became corrupt. So are you saying that Republicans don't actually believe in what they're talking about? I'm saying it's a a lot easier to have ideas and to be interested in ideas when you're not in charge of anything. And as soon as you are in charge of something, your primary goal becomes maintaining power. Of course, I mean, it's the oldest story ever written. And Republicans figured out what everyone else already knew, which was there are very few small government conservatives in the United States. I don't mean in Congress. I mean in the whole country, 300 million people. You know, there are 11 people who really believe in small government. Everybody else, conservatives included, wants their Social Security check, wants prescription drug benefit, wants universal health care. People want stuff from government. They want government to force other people to pay for stuff for them. That's just human nature, and it's very hard for the average person to rise above that very natural instinct of selfishness. And Republicans figured that out very quickly. If you want to get reelected, this whole small government conservatism business, you know, sounds good. It turns on the staff at Cato and me. You know, we like it, but the ordinary voter doesn't care at all. In fact, he hates it. He wants more stuff. Does that mean libertarians have no business in politics? It means libertarians are doomed to remain out of power, which is fine with me. You know, I'm not a strict libertarian, but I I identify more closely with them by far than anybody else. And it's probably not a good idea for – I mean, I I would like to see Ed Crane president, but it would probably be bad for Ed Crane. You know, running things is really hard. Running the federal government is almost impossible. And running the federal government as a small government conservative has never been done. You said in a Cato City seminar, I think it was two years ago in December, Republicans will be punished for what they have done, but for all the wrong reasons. I guess that you meant they'd be punished for the Jack Abramoffs and the Duke Cunninghams and not for their failure to deliver on the conservative promise. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, because voters, again, aren't very interested in principle. I'm not attacking voters. It's just an observation about the way that they are and the way they behave. Not to brag, I was right. They were punished for the perception they were corrupt. And they are corrupt. They were corrupt in some deep sense. Their principles were corrupted, but they weren't. The average member of Congress isn't venal. He's not getting rich from serving in Congress. Most of these guys live in group houses and sleep on the couch with a bunch of other congressmen. How would you like that? You know, that's not the life of a rich guy. They're not corrupt in the traditional sense, but voters thought they were and punished them accordingly. Also, they got hammered over a rock, which is fair. 
That's one issue, I think. I mean, that's the original sin for George W. Bush. And it's not a question of principle. Again, voters don't care about the ideas behind neoconservatism and the ludicrous notion that bringing democracy to the Middle East would make the region stable. They don't even understand that the Bush administration went to war with those ideas or on behalf of those ideas. They don't care. All they know is America is being humiliated day after day in Iraq, and they resent it, rightfully so. So that's the other reason, the main reason Republicans lost. Does the backlash against corruption help explain Rudy Giuliani's lead in the polls? I mean, whatever his views on social issues and his support for abortion rights, he's perceived as someone who cleaned up New York City and is also viewed as a hero of 9-11. Yes. Well, the truth is I don't fully understand Giuliani's appeal to Republican primary voters, most of whom are social conservatives, pretty strict social conservatives. They don't like abortion. The press has wildly overplayed the appeal of the gay issue to conservatives. I don't think your average Republican primary voter hates gays. Will and Grace has great ratings. That argument's over, basically. The anti-gay position is no longer, I don't think, an election winner for anybody. But abortion is not going away. Millions and tens of millions of people sincerely oppose legal abortion, and that has the capacity, that issue, to move votes. It seems to have had no effect on Giuliani's appeal on the right. Why is that? I can only guess off the top of my head. I mean, something I brood about every day. But my current theory is... He's seen as strong in a time of war. People instinctively want a strong leader. He, of course, has no foreign policy experience. He ran a city. You know, he's never even served in Congress. But for some reason, people think he is a potentially, anyway, a strong international leader, and that's why they like him. Well, the fact that he's not served in Congress could potentially help his candidacy, can't it? Well, sure. I mean, of course. Washington has a bad reputation, partly undeserved, I would say. Like Obama, he's not sullied by decades of service here. I mean, the sad irony is that someone like... Joe Biden, as annoying as he can be, I don't agree with most things Joe Biden says, is a pretty sophisticated voice on foreign policy. He actually knows a lot about the subject and is on some basic level, and you can't say this for all Democrats, really concerned about America's place in the world. He's a pretty serious guy. He's written off immediately, not just because of the hair plugs, but because he's been here since the 70s. And that's, that's unfair. But again, that's the way electoral politics has always worked. What about McCain? How is his campaign different eight years later? Well, the headline, as far as I can tell, in the McCain campaign so far is how profoundly conservatives dislike McCain. And this goes back to the very first question you asked me, what happened to the right? Conservatives think that McCain has sold them out, that he is not one of them, that he has contempt for them, that he's a secret liberal. All of that is, of course, partly true. All stereotypes are partly true. That's why they exist. However... It is also deeply unfair. McCain is no more liberal than Bush. In some ways, he's more conservative than Bush. Bush has the benefit, I really believe this is true, no one ever says this, of being an evangelical. The pivotal point in the 2000 election, on the Republican side anyway, was Bush's remark in a debate that Jesus was his favorite personal philosopher. And all the smart people, all the cool kids laughed at that, derided it. Huh? Jesus wasn't a philosopher. Right. People mocked it. I mocked it. Didn't matter. Clear signal to evangelicals. You don't have contempt for us. You are one of us. You understand us. You're on our side, period. We're voting for you. That was huge. McCain, not an evangelical. He's, a, he's an Episcopalian. You know, he's a wasp. I mean, of course, Bush is too. You know, he became a Methodist. But it's all about tribal affiliation. Evangelicals, still the core of the Republican base, see McCain as someone who has contempt for them, who mocks them as snake handlers, who does not understand them. And it obscures the truth, which is McCain on some things is actually a lot more conservative than Bush and probably more principled than Bush. But it doesn't matter. They hate him. Do you think evangelicals matter still, considering Rudy Giuliani's popularity and the fact that everyone's polarized by the war? Well, it's a good question. 
I mean, strictly speaking, evangelicals matter. There are a lot of them, and they vote. But they have the same problem that mainstream conservative groups have. You know, the people like Grover Norquist, who sold out early and often to power, have. And many of them sold out, too. They wanted access to President Bush, too. They thought he's one of us. He understands our issues. We will support the Iraq war, for instance. Well, what about being an evangelical, which lead you to support the Iraq war? I mean, I'm sympathetic to evangelicals, mostly because everyone hates them, so I feel like I want to stand up for them. But I don't understand what the hell being an evangelical has to do with supporting this war. But they did. Why? Personal loyalty to Bush. They sold out, like most people on the right. And the effect long-term of selling out is it diminishes your authority, and their authority has been diminished as a result of that. They brought it on themselves. When church and state commingle, church is weakened. Ironically, this used to plague the Democrats, that they, they didn't present a clear message to voters, and now I would say it's the conservatives that are dangerously off message. Well, conservatives, if you mean people with deeply held conservative or libertarian beliefs, I mean the entire conservative coalition that's instrumental to winning an election. Well, I'm not even sure it's clear that conservatives have agreed on what it means to be conservative anymore. Does it mean to espouse smaller government? Well, I mean, Bush gives the lie to that. He's still called a conservative, even by conservatives. They still defend him. Seventy percent of Republicans support Bush still, a little-known poll number that tells you a lot. Bush is obviously not a small government conservative, so you can't say being conservative means a commitment to the principles of small government. Rudy Giuliani is the most popular Republican, even among conservatives. So you can't say a commitment to social conservatism is the key. So what exactly is it? Is it restraint in foreign policy? Well, obviously not. I'm not even sure there's a consensus. In fact, I'm certain there isn't a consensus on what it means to be a conservative in 2007. And that's the problem. If you don't know what you are, you don't know where you want to go, you're pretty unlikely to get there. Do you think Democrats know where they want to go? I mean, is, is there anything to distinguish Hillary Clinton from Barack Obama besides gender and a distinct lack of charisma? That is actually a great question. No, of course not. I mean, just because the Republican Party is an ideological, intellectual disarray doesn't mean the Democratic Party is in any better shape. But they have an organizing principle. Democrats have an organizing principle. It's very simple. Bush is evil. He is the only thing keeping that coalition together, of course. And we, we've seen this a lot. We saw it with Clinton, you know, a president who united the right. We saw it with Nixon, who united the left and peeled off people in the middle for the left and vice versa with Clinton. That is their reason for being, opposition to Bush. Now, when Bush fades from the scene, as he will in less than two years, what are they left with? Well, that's a question they're going to have to figure out themselves. I mean, Democrats, this is all is a little boring. But the bottom line, let me just say this. Democrats are more nimble, smarter, I think, than they've been in a long time. They ran a number of fairly socially conservative candidates in the midterm in 2006. They ran a number of candidates who oppose abortion, breaking a 20-year-long embargo on any candidate who wasn't pro-choice. That's a big deal that has been pretty much overlooked by the media. So they've become more flexible, but at some point they're going to have to sit down and decide what does it mean to be a Democrat apart from hating Bush, and they haven't done it yet. The majority of support for the Cato Institute's work comes from individuals, and Cato depends solely on tax-deductible contributions to provide the public with a wealth of free resources, including this podcast. We hope you'll consider supporting or even joining Cato. For information, please go to www.cato.org.